Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knutson had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Knutson, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. And in today's episode, I talk with Shailene Thomas about understanding emerging contaminants and regulatory matters for civil engineers. But before we dive into the civil engineering conversation, I have some exciting news. PPI, our exclusive exam prep podcast sponsor, is giving away $100 Amazon gift cards every month to our listeners. For more information on how to qualify, make sure to listen to my announcement later on in this episode. I'm also excited to tell you about our newest sponsor, SkyCiv Engineering, a company who offers structural analysis software on the cloud. With easy, affordable subscription pricing, they're making structural analysis software available to everyone who needs it. And I'll tell you more about how they can help you in just a few moments. I'd like to introduce our guest for today's civil engineering conversation. It's Shailene Thomas, who's the Emerging Contaminants Program Manager for AMEC Foster Wheeler. She has more than 18 years of experience in environmental consulting, and has supported clients with per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS evaluations, since 2009. You're going to learn a lot more about what those are during the main segment of the conversation. She currently serves as the technical lead for PFAS assessment, site investigations at more than 100 sites for the Air Force, the Air National Guard, and Navy. And to date, she has supported PFAS projects in 20 different states and in 9 out of the 10 U.S. EPA regions. So get ready for a conversation about understanding emerging contaminants and regulatory matters for civil engineers in this episode of the Civil Engineer Podcast with Shailene Thomas. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Before we dive into our main segment, I want to let you know that this week's Civil Engineering Conversation is brought to you by SkyCiv. Now, SkyCiv is a new and powerful structural analysis software on the cloud that is changing the way engineers work. Their software is securely based on the cloud and runs through your web browser, so there's nothing to download, install, or even maintain. SkyCiv offers subscription-based pricing, so you can even subscribe month-to-month as you need it. SkyCiv Structural 3D comes with a full section builder, easy reporting, multiple solve types, plate analysis, and integrated design modules such as ASIC 360. And for a limited time, SkyCiv is offering all of our listeners a free 14-day trial. Sign up for this exclusive offer by visiting skyciv.com forward slash coach and try SkyCiv today. All right, now it's time for this week's Civil Engineering Conversation. I'm joined by Shailene Thomas. Shailene, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. We're going to be getting into a topic that it's possible that many civil engineers aren't fully aware of and and maybe aren't completely read in on. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on the show today and uh, have a conversation around something that's known as PFAS or per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And according to a 2016 study that was published in the American Chemical Society Journal, it cites that more than 6 million Americans drink water contaminated with toxic chemicals that can be traced to military and industrial sites known as these PFASs. So for those that may not be familiar and maybe haven't even heard of PFAS, can you explain what these are? So per and polyfluoroalkyl substances are a class of fluorinated compounds, fluorinated surfactants to be specific, that have been ubiquitously used across industry and personal consumer use since as early as 1950 when they were first invented. 
Uh, they're synthetic compounds. They contain both fully fluorinated carbon chain lengths as well as compounds that are not fully fluorinated. And obviously these substances have made their way into the water systems across America because we have uh, cited here in this one study, we've got millions of people that are exposed to these. Why are they a concern now to not only probably local communities, but I know that your work has really been uh, with the Department of Defense and uh, the U.S. government, but why are these PFAS substances now a concern or, or have they been for a while? I would say that the emerging concern started back in 2008-2009 timeframe when both the EPA and the Department of Defense developed emerging contaminant programs. These emerging contaminant programs were defined as chemicals that currently have no promulgated rule or criteria for human health or environmental health effects. There's new science around them. And both of the EPA and the Department of Defense developed these programs with the intention of evaluating contaminants that are emerging, that they don't have a lot of science around them, they don't have criteria. With the onset of this program, per and polyfluoroalkyl substances came to the forefront of the issue for evaluation by the EPA and the Department of Defense. Okay, so because they don't have, you know, they've got limited science, I guess, to kind of support what the effects are to, to human consumption. Is there a lot of studies that are going on with this right now in academia, or is it predominantly maybe through the government? What kind of work is really underway to help us understand better the effects that these substances have on humans? That's a very interesting question, Chris, and one that I've been tracking very closely. I've been involved in this work since 2009 timeframe and really pushed forward quite fast and furious with a McFoster Wheeler with the Department of Defense in 2013. I've been tracking the academic literature, and it's gone from a handful of uh, publications per month to really two to 300 publications we're seeing now on a monthly basis. It's really expanded in every type of area from phaeton transport to analytical chemistry to toxicology, and then, of course, to remediation. The ESNT article that you referenced is a very good journal to keep up to date on a lot of the ongoing research in these different arenas. Another great facet, I would say, from a research and development perspective is the ESTCP and CERDIP. It's a group under the Department of Defense that does research. They have been doing research probably over the last five years at least, specifically focused around investigation and cleanup of these contaminants of concern. For everyone that's listening, we'll provide links, URLs and links in the show notes for these different entities, bodies, so that you can go out and get access to them and take a look at this if you want to read a little bit more about the work that's going on. I kind of want to back up for a minute because we did a brief explanation of what PFASs are, but we'd be interested to hear a little bit more about what effects do we believe that these substances have on just humans in general right now? It sounds like obviously the, the research body is going on and you know the long-term effects is something that's going to have to be borne out through study and analysis. But what are some of the initial thoughts about impacts that these substances have on humans and why this is becoming a, a greater concern? From a human health perspective, the first known effects happened as early as 1978 when 3M one of the manufacturers of the PFAS compounds, identified that there was detectable levels of these fluorosurfactants in the human blood. Fast forward that to 2005 as a result of a class action lawsuit against DuPont, again, 
a manufacturer of these chemicals as a result of the class action lawsuit, a epidemiological study was ordered by the judge to be conducted of a community in Parkersburg, West Virginia that was contaminated by their water supply from this manufacturing entity. The epidemiological study went on for two years, the largest epidemiological study that is known out there right now, and it resulted in a handful of health outcomes that were published in uh, 2015. The key probable outcomes were kidney and testicular cancer, colitis, thyroid disease, and then uh, some less severe ones for pregnancy-induced hypertension and high cholesterol. PFAS compounds have been detected in 98% of the human population and CDC. So for everyone that's listening, it gives you a better impression of what the substances are and in some of the uh, potential serious effects of having these in the water systems. And as many of us that are listening to this podcast are well aware that uh, water systems within the United States have seen better days. Many of them are old. There's a lot of contaminants that are making their way into the water systems, and we don't even have to bring up uh, Flint as a worst-case example in this. So uh, as, as civil engineers, it is useful to understand some of the contaminations and contaminants that are out there that can affect water drinking systems and the importance of these. Shaley, what are some of the current drivers for action? So obviously, DOD and the EPA, at least at the federal level, those agencies are interested in trying to get out there and, and get these substances uh, cleaned up and to develop programs that, that can help guide installations, let's say, maybe communities and what they're doing. But are there other drivers that are out there that are leading us forward in the actions? I would say the primary driver in the current climate is definitely the Department of Defense's own guidance. The Air Force, followed by the Navy, followed by the Army late last year, have all developed guidance documents to evaluate, manage, and mitigate contamination related to this PFAS class of chemicals. The Department of Defense, of course, is specifically interested in this class of compounds as they relate to their aqueous film-forming foam, or AFFF foam. This is firefighting foam that was used by the Department of Defense since early 1970s when it was defined in a mill specification requirement by the Navy. So I would say that's the primary driver is the DOD taking a step out and developing their own guidance documents in effect to evaluate what the contamination is specifically related and most primarily to drinking water scenarios and complete exposure pathways to drinking water. The EPA has followed suit in 2016, so May of last year, they developed lifetime health advisories. These, of course, are Safe Drinking Water Act-driven health advisories. They are not promulgated rules, so they're not maximum contaminant levels, as would be the case under the Safe Drinking Water Act promulgation, but they are guidance for drinking water scenarios. Then I would say the final driver really for action has been primarily by social momentum. And by that, I mean, we've seen communities, whole communities deal with contaminated water supplies now as a result of this emerging contaminant class. Examples in Pease Air Force Base in New Hampshire, Hoosick Falls in New York, Parkersburg, West Virginia, which I mentioned. So these communities have organized themselves through social media channels and have also connected to each other 
And I think a lot of those social pressures are really being pushed at the state level and causing states to now act. And maybe as a follow-on question, you mentioned the DOD's got the guidance documents that are out there, and the EPA has begun developing some source documents. Are there any state level regulations uh, that you're aware of that might be of interest to any of our civil engineer listeners that are out there? Yes, there's approximately a dozen states. So with the lack of promulgated rule at the federal level, really what we're seeing is approximately a dozen states putting their step forward and developing their own regulatory guidance and our promulgated rule. Within those states, the lowest so far is proposed value out of New Jersey for drinking water of 14 parts per trillion. We also have Vermont at 20 parts per trillion, and that's for protection of groundwater as well as drinking water supply. And then it goes on and upward from there, up to and equal to the 70 parts per trillion that was published by EPA last year for the two primary PFAS compounds of concern, or that have been of interest to date, which are perfluorooctane sulfonate and perfluorooctanoic acid, PFOA and PFOS. To get to those levels, either the EPA prescribed or maybe some of these state ones, one could very well find themselves in a situation where they are going to have to do remediation and cleanup. Could you explain what some of the options are that are out there currently today for remediation and cleanup? So there's been a lot of challenges around the PFAS compound class to date as it relates to remediation technology simply because that CF bond is the strongest bond out there found in nature. So because it's so strong, it's been wonderful in the material science perspective to be used in various applications as fluorosurfactant, waterproofing, water treatment applications. But on the flip side, it therefore is very recalcitrant from a remediation cleanup perspective. In soil, the only option to date really has been incineration. There are a handful of remediation options out there that are using some sorbent technologies to bind the PFAS out of soil. They are, of course, really at the onset, just past demonstration and validation and the onset of commercialization right now. On the water side, granular activated carbon has really been the go-to remediation technology of choice, both from a water treatment perspective and then from a uh, groundwater cleanup perspective. And that has really been twofold. It's, it's proven somewhat effective to date. And oftentimes, the other reason that it's still front and center for water perspective is because oftentimes these situations are emergencies. So when contamination is found in a drinking water supply, we cannot go to some innovative technology. We have to use what's tried and true. So that has somewhat stunted some of the other technologies and development of other technologies. Some other things that are coming up as it relates to water are ion exchange resin technologies. I would say they're probably following in second place here behind granular activated carbon. Several other things that have been tried are really in the R&D stage or, again, the demonstration validation stage from a development perspective. And so as a civil engineer, what do you think might be three important takeaway items that they really need to know about PFAS as they go about their uh, work that they do either in uh, water systems or just uh, in general civil engineering activities they may be associated with? 
One thing I would note that we haven't discussed yet in order to answer that question to its full extent is we've defined both PFOS, PFOS, and PFOA, PFOA, as the primary constituents of interest. Those are the ones that have been in the lead here from this per and polyfluoroalkyl substance category of chemicals. However, researchers have determined within the last five years now that the polyfluorinated alkyl substances actually can break down in the environment to form these persistent bioaccumulative and toxic PFOS and PFOA. So when you're looking to remediation and trying to understand from an engineering perspective what considerations you might need to take, you need to not only evaluate remediation of these obvious PFOS and PFOA contaminants, but also identify, manage, mitigate, and remediate their precursor compounds, which are, again, the polyfluoroalkyl substances that often are mixed and are part of the mixture within the AFFF formulations for firefighting foam. Three items I would say for a civil engineer from this perspective is looking at uh, soil management planning for construction and grading. If you're on a facility that has used these compounds, be it AFFF formulations or other reasons for use, understanding where and how these chemicals were used on that facility and where and how contamination may have occurred will really alter any type of soil management planning you're going to do from a construction and grading perspective. Because these are recalcitrant, it's likely that the contamination is still in the soil and you don't really want to be moving contaminated soil to a place where it's not contaminated within your site. Secondary, I would add on a stormwater management perspective, across the over 100 sites that we've evaluated now, all of the stormwater samples that we have collected at all of the sites are near 100% detectable levels of PFAS. This is somewhat alarming, but it also indicates that when contamination does occur, stormwater does become a secondary source for contaminant transport off-site. So it's definitely imperative to understand if there's potential contamination, what is the stormwater flow look like at the site and how are you going to manage that stormwater so that you don't extend contamination beyond what it is currently. The last item I would add in looking at sites specifically with AFFF or fire training areas is development of best management practices for AFFF use, AFFF storage, and of course, disposal during fire training exercises. Most of the industry now has nearly 100% converted to a C6, six-carbon-based fluorosurfactant. So it's not the PFOS and PFOA. Those, of course, have both discontinued in the use and manufacturing within the U.S. as of the end of 2015. So C6 formulations are the newer, improved version that have less environmental concerns associated with them. Still, management of these foams is imperative uh, to minimize any type of impact. Okay, great. So just to summarize for a bit, it's listening, if you're really looking at soil management, stormwater management, and then looking for these best practices for the use and the management of the AFFF uh, aqueous firefighting foams. So great rundown, Shane, and I really appreciate that. You've been involved in this field for a number of years, as you mentioned. I'd be curious for, to hear about why and how you became a subject matter expert uh, interested in these substances. 
my background really supported a lot of the evaluation of perm polyfluoroalkyl substances from the onset back in 2008 and 9 I supported project where we had to develop a clearinghouse of analytical papers, white papers. It was a database of sorts to support a state regulatory agency in trying to understand and determine next steps for investigation and remediation of this compound class. Through that exercise, I had to evaluate over 1,200 different articles, white papers, and academic research to understand where and how a state agency could really support a decision-making process in evaluating perm polyfluoroalkyl substances. So with that, I had a really good baseline and framework to more or less become an expert in the arena. At the time, that was probably most of the leading academic research that was out there. It's, of course, now very difficult to keep up with all of the literature that gets published on a near weekly basis, but it definitely set that platform for me to drive and become an expert. And then I would say, obviously, it's like anything very opportunistic. From the state work that I supported, we have a very large portfolio at A. McFoster Wheeler for the Department of Defense, and that was a natural transition when they developed their guidance back in 2012, and the Air Force first let their first set of work in uh, 2013 to do preliminary assessments and site investigations. I was one of the few people in the company that had any experience or had even heard of these compounds. I think by nature of uh, good luck, I would say, I was able to expand my experience even further and help lead that program. Another wonderful story of preparation meeting opportunity. So outstanding. I'm glad that you've been able to develop the expertise uh, and to be able to come on the show here and share those with us today. So where can people go to learn more about the work that you're doing with AMEC Foster Wheeler and Emerging Contaminants? We have a few conferences coming up that we will be participating in. I lead as the Emerging Contaminant Program Manager for the company. I lead our PFAS workgroup team, and our team tries to participate in technical forums around the country annually. And we have two coming up that you can definitely look out for us. Uh, We will be at the Joint Engineering Training Conference. That's May 23rd through 25th in Columbus. We also have part of our work group at the Battelle Sediments Conference that same week. Additionally, you can always look to www.amecfw.com forward slash EC. We have an emerging contaminant company site there. Wonderful. And we'll make sure that those links are in the show notes as well. And so people can get out there and uh, can take a look at the great work that you're doing with Amec Foster Wheeler. So Thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts and your experience and expertise here during the main segment of the show. And uh, everyone stick around. We'll be right back with the Civil Engineer Hot Seat segment. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our Civil Engineer Hot Seat segment, which in today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, PPI. If you're preparing for the civil PE exam, you probably know that the Civil Engineering Reference Manual by Michael Lindeberg is the book to use. Michael Lindeberg is actually the founder and president of PPI, the leader in FE and PE exam prep. And PPI has new prep courses available for the civil PE exam that offer complete coverage of not only the morning breath exam, but also your choice of afternoon depth exams. The course presents over 60 hours of new content and walks you through tons of exam-like practice problems. 
And when you enroll in the live online prep course, PPI also includes on-demand lectures for free, so you can start studying while you wait for the course to begin. And through October 2017, PPI will be choosing two of our podcast listeners per month to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you enroll in this course. To enter the raffle, just visit www.ppitopass.com forward slash civil prep. Again, that's www.ppi, the number two, pass slash civil prep. From there, you'll need to choose your course and check out. On the checkout page, enter the promo code prep and then complete your enrollment. Again, you need to enter the promo code PREP before completing your enrollment to qualify for the gift card. You'll be notified on the first of the month if you won the $100 gift card. Now, I used PPI for my PA exam prep, so I feel confident in recommending that you check out this prep course. Plus, you could win $100. Good luck. All right, Shailene, to close up today's interview, I've got two final questions for you. The first one would be, uh, what is a good general resource that you might recommend to any of the civil engineers out there listening that they can go to? It could be a book or maybe some additional websites that might be able to help them increase their knowledge about PFAS mitigation, cleanup, remediation, and just PFAS in general. The Remediation Journal, actually, this is a very timely question in that the uh, June edition of the Remediation Journal will have a segment on PFAS remediation. We have one of our authors from Amec Foster-Wheeler is supporting that journal and we'll have an article around our ion exchange resin technology. So I would say that's a great source. Supplement to that, we have a chapter coming up in the Air Force Institute of Technology is putting a book out on remediation for PFAS compounds. Not yet published, and I can provide you, Chris, with more information for the listeners on that. Great. I appreciate that. Those will be uh, two great resources to be able to get out to everyone that's out there listening. So thank you. And I've got one final question. This is, it's really our standard question that we ask uh, each of our guests that come on the podcast. And it's this, if you got into an elevator, Shailene, with a civil engineer and you had about 30 or 40 seconds with him or her and had to give them some career advice, what would it be? I would say that's an easy question. If I look back on my own career and uh, things I did well, things I wish I would have done differently. I think early on in your career, taking on any and all challenge that's thrown your way and opportunity that's given to you. And don't put pressure on yourself to jump into that career path right away. Look and understand what those opportunities being thrown at you are. Take that first three to five years to learn from every and all experiences that you have. And that will really help you with your direction and focus based on those lessons learned in that experience on the job training, so to speak, to really set a path that is good for you as an individual, something that you thoroughly enjoy and are interested in. It gives you more focus and direction, I would say. That's great advice. And it sounds to me like you took your own advice, developing yourself and your ability to become an expert in this particular arena. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing all the other information that you shared with us today in this episode and for coming on the show, Shailene. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Everyone out there, just remember, you can find show notes for the episode. You just go to civilengineeringpodcast.com, look for episode number 61, and there you're going to find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to the resources, the websites, and the, the books and the journals that we mentioned throughout today's show. And you can also leave Anthony and I a question in the comments section, or as always, visit the Ask Us tab on the website. He and I both monitor all the comments. We're going to respond if you leave us one. We'd love to hear from you. We're going to look for your input. 
And until next time, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.